text for this morning is Ecclesiastes 7, verses 1 through 12. And that's on page 320 in your church Bible. We'll begin reading from chapter 6, verse 12, through chapter 7, verse 12. This is the reading of God's holy word. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the few days of death than the day of birth. Than the de- and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and the preaching of his holy word. Almighty God, we thank you, Father, for the word that you have given us is truth. That your word doesn't contain the truth, that your word is the truth. And Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to embrace the good news of the gospel and the warnings that we need. Father, we acknowledge how it is that we lack wisdom. That wisdom is so elusive, except by the work of your Spirit. Father, of all things, help us to understand that there will be a day of judgment. And Father, we pray that we might be prepared for it. Not by attempting to live a righteous life, but by believing the good news of the gospel. And by following Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We pray, Father, that the good news of the gospel would go forward this day. That if any are here who do not know you, we pray, Father, that you would do a mighty work of conversion. That you would open hearts to embrace this good news. And that you would turn our hearts in repentance. That we would forsake our sins and trust in Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, that your son Jesus would be exalted. That your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. When you think about our culture, our culture 
does not like to hear about death. For that matter, I don't know many cultures that enjoy the thought about death. Because with death is the unknown. It is only known because God has told us in his word what comes with death. With death comes judgment. So people do all kinds of things to try to avoid thinking about death. So one of the things that they do is they start to make euphemisms even in language. Uh, he's passed on, you know, he's, he's gone to a better place, and they don't like talking about death, or he's passed away. People don't like thinking about death. And you think about what they do with uh, people who are suffering and nothing more can be done for them. Think about hospice, hospice care. They try to hide them away so that they're not in the neighborhoods, that you don't hear the wailings of people who are suffering and in their dying moments. This is all because nobody wants to have to think about death. Yet we have it here so clearly in our passage about how it's the fool who refuses to acknowledge that one day you and I are going to die. They deny that. They think somehow, well, science will progress. Technology will advance. Medical technology will improve so much so that we might have a few years, extra years on the back end. There's only one person who has conquered death. And his name is Jesus Christ. Amen. And he gives us the good news of the gospel. When we see this book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes presents life under the sun. And I thought I understood it when I started preaching about it. And the more I started preaching about it, it seems like the less I understand about it. All at the same time, just because we don't have a full under, uh, understanding about it, at least I don't, it doesn't mean that it is not the Word of God. It is the Word of God, and it is powerful unto salvation. And here, we learn about life under the sun. So life under the sun is speaking about life uh, in in the imperfection after the fall, when Adam and Eve fell, something happened, something significant happened. That life was lost. Fellowship with God was lost. That suffering came into this world, suffering because of sin, and death came into the world. And oftentimes, when we think about what the author, Kohelet, uh, is saying, he's talking about how there is the, the gloominess and the sadness and the vanity, the meaninglessness of life apart from God. So he's saying, hey, as if he's saying, hey, you, you want to say there is no God? All there is is what you see? Well, then let's go that route. Let's, let's talk about how, how bad life is without God. And after you've come to that conclusion, then there'll be something better. Fear God. Obey his commandments. Trust in him. Trust in his word. In our immediate context here of chapter 7, that last verse of chapter 6, 6 verse 12, it asks the two questions. Who knows what is good for a man while he lives a few days of his vain life? That's the first question. Uh, and the second question, for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Chapter 7 answers at least those two questions. So, what is good for man? So verses 1 through 12 
Today's passage answers that question, what is good? And then from verse 14 on, answers that question, what will be after him under the sun? So that's this passage, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. This is what we see in God's word here. O mortal, learn from God's word what is good, that you may live well and prepare yourself for death. O mortal, learn from God's word what is good, that you may prepare, that you may live well and prepare yourself for death. <clears throat> we'll look at this in five points. The first is character is better than cologne. Second, mourning better than mirth. Third, humility better than imbecility. Fourth, prudence better than vehemence. And fifth, wisdom better than wealth. So the first point, character is better than cologne. The first part of verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment. Here, having a good name, we're told in the Proverbs, is something that should be sought after. We should desire to have a good name. We should not be slaves to our reputation. And the way that this works is as a man thinks, so he speaks, and so he does. The thoughts that you have will come out in the words that you say and in the actions that you do. And all three of these, your thinking, your speaking, and your doing, are all going to be a function of your character, of your heart. So it will be your, your thoughts, your, your words, and your actions will be a manifestation of the character that's within you. The result is that as others around you notice the words that you say and the things that you do, then over time, a, a reputation begins to form. And over a life, there will be a lasting remembrance. Proverbs 20, verse 11 says, Even a child makes himself known by his acts, by whether his conduct is pure and upright. Meaning that a reputation, a name, is beginning to develop even for a child. So children, listen carefully about the words that you choose to use and about the actions that you do because people will see and memories will be made. <clears throat> when you think about a person's name, that we ought to be able to think well of one another as best as we can. But you realize people who have very poor control over their emotions are quick-tempered that that will manifest itself in their, in their name and in their reputation, all be coupled together. Then we think about the matter of cologne or this ointment. So this ointment... Is, is actually referring to the, the types of things used for embalming, or perhaps in the example in John chapter 12, when Mary came to anoint Jesus' feet with this expensive bottle of spike nard. So this is a fragrance. It's saved up. And was it Judas who said, hey, what's going on here? That that bottle could have been sold for 300 denarii. And as you know, a, a working man's wage is at one denarius a day. So 300 denarii was about a year's wage. Say, hey, 
What did, what did she do that for? That, that, was, that was expensive stuff. It could have been sold and, and the proceeds given to the poor. And smelling good is important. Especially if you're like me. You like garlic. I like garlic. People around me know I like garlic. And so, hey, Frank's spike nard might be good for you. And so you think about life and you think about death. No matter how good your coffin is, uh, you are still going to decay. You will still decay in the grave. <clears throat> and no matter how good your expensive ointment is, uh, you will decay. So when you think about what is good, a good name is better than precious ointment. A good name is better than expensive medical treatments. At the end of the day, you will still die. Precious ointment won't preserve your life from death. You will still die. And you think about having a good name. <clears throat> is that enough? Is being a good person, having a good reputation, is that what saves you? The answer is no. That will never save you. Because what God requires is perfection. And what you and I are not, we're not perfection. We're imperfection. We're sin. And if any man says, hey, God, look at the law. It justifies me. Then God will say, no, look at the law. It condemns you. That's, that's the truth behind the rich young ruler. When he goes to Jesus saying, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, oh, go to, let's look at the commandments. And it's not as if Jesus is saying, oh, this one more thing. Sell all your possessions and give it to the poor, then follow me, and then your works will save you. He's not saying that. He's talking about the commandments. This man was blind. He was saying, I've obeyed all of them. And, and Jesus just picks out one and says, go do this. So the conclusion this rich young ruler should have had, which he did, was he went away grieving because he wasn't willing to sell his goods to give it to the poor. He was holding on to those things. So Jesus was not saying, do this and you will live. He was actually saying, you want to play the game of obey the law, I'll show you where you fail. I only need to show you one place. In fact, Jesus could have said, you actually fail in all of them, but I'll show you one place just to prove it to you. And so character doesn't save. But character is better and Cologne. And so the second point, mourning is better than mirth. From verses 1 through 4. And the day of death and the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. <clears throat> Here, the day of death is better than the day of birth. Perhaps some of you are thinking, what fool wrote that? The answer is, the Holy Spirit is the one who wrote this, and it is not foolishness, it is truth. The world rejects that claim. The world says, hey, look, when you were born, everyone was laughing and rejoicing. And then at your death, 
Everyone was mourning. That's everyone else's perspective. What about your own? If you're in Christ, upon your birth, all of us were crying. But being in Christ, at your death, you will certainly be rejoicing. Birth for the Christian is good. It's joyous. But no joy in life can compare to the eternity of joy in heaven that begins at your death. And this is something that the scriptures teach us and the Holy Spirit attempts to change us in. Having a different view about life and death. For me, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That again is someone saying, see, that's foolishness. No, that's wisdom from God. To die is the gain. Because death marks the beginning of everything that you hope for in faith. And that faith tells us, God, what you said in your word will be true exactly as you said it. So that at death, what you and I are doing is taking a leap of faith, trusting in God. God, everything that you told me will be true as you have promised me in your word. All the things that I've held dear, I'm going to let them go. Because ultimately, all of us have to. Nothing comes with us. All of it stays behind. It is a good thing for you to be reminded about your mortality. Because with death comes judgment. The wise man is willing to think about death... And he's able to say in, his, in that same sentence, or perhaps in this very phrase, I will one day die, and I must be ready to meet God. The fool avoids making that statement, and avoids thinking those thoughts that one day they will also die. I remember talking to a life insurance salesman. And this life insurance salesman was a Christian, and as he starts going through <clears throat> the timelines and the tables, he, he made this comment and says, Okay, Frank, I killed you off at 87 or 91. And he goes, Ha, 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 ha. And, and, and I think about it. It's like, well, this is a, even that is a reminder. You're buying life insurance. This is a reminder that someday you're going to die. I, I wonder how offended someone would have been if, uh, if he said, Hey, I killed you off at 51 or or even 95. Should this offend us? Should the truth offend us? You ever notice, why do people get so upset when you speak the truth? It's because people like to live in lies. The world presents lies. The, the world is so good at spinning the lies for us. And yet, all of us must come to the realization that... This physical, this present life will come to an end. That pain in your ankle, that pain in your shoulder, all of those are reminders that your body is falling apart. And one day, you won't get up. Meaning one day, you will die. So the question I have for you is, are you ready to face judgment before God? 
And on what terms do you think you will be acquitted? It's not because your, your good works outweigh your bad works. Ultimately, it must be because you're trusting in Jesus Christ. You have no righteousness of your own. All the righteous things that you claim that will cover your sins, those were already, there was, those were already required. The sins can't be covered. You, it must be paid for. Either you will pay for an eternity in hell, or someone can pay for you. And the only one who can make a valid payment, a sufficient payment, is Jesus Christ. And that payment only comes by faith. No, I want to work for it. Your work will be in, in hell forever. Or you can accept the free offer of eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. His righteousness is a free gift. You and I must have the humility to embrace that good news. When you think about Jesus, he was that man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. Men hid their faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. He understood mourning. He understood the worst of mourning. He understood the rejection from men. Men he loved who came, for whom he came uh, to, to, to teach and to instruct. Yet you realize that ultimately, it's not our sadness that saves us. It is Jesus Christ who saves us to the uttermost. So mourning is better than mirth. Humility, a third point. Humility is better than imbecility in verses 5 and 6. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise. I'm going to say this. Your wisdom, your humility, and your godliness, or your lack of all three, are going to be demonstrated by how you respond to rebuke. Would you agree? Your wisdom, humility, and godliness, or your lack thereof, are going to be demonstrated by how you respond to rebuke. Listen to the words of Proverbs 9, verses 7 and 9. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase his learning. You hear that? If you receive a necessary rebuke from the word of God. And you, you hate that person who rebuked you? What does the word of God say you are? It says that you're a scoffer. It says that you're a, a wicked man or a woman. But if you love the person who rebukes you, the scriptures say that you're actually wise. And that wiser still will you be. Now, do you believe, do you, do you live like you actually believe this? Better to hear the rebuke of the wise. I ask you, do you erect big barriers for yourself so that others can't come close to you? 
Do you, do you put off this air of superiority, right? This air, air of intimidation? Or are you easily approachable by others? Do others have to walk on eggshells around you? Do they have to make special provisions for you and be concerned about your mood that day? Do others explode, or do you explode in anger if others dis even disagree with you? Oh, how dare you even disagree with me? Let alone rebuke me. How do you respond when even those who love you admonish you? It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Notice how the culture, our culture is changing. Rational, reasonable dialogue is shut off. Intimidation is used to silence people. Where there might be conversation, hey, well, why do you think this way? This is why I think this. Well, okay, why? Now, now I understand why people think that way. Well, why do you think otherwise? Well, this is why I think otherwise. Oh, well, now I understand why you think otherwise. Hey, you know what? I, I think your view is actually better than my view. Those things have come to an end, seems like. People don't talk about differences. Proverbs warns us, 27.6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Are your friends those who always say good things about you? Or are your true friends actually those who say the painful things that you need to hear? I think also about the other side. The why is giving rebukes. Now perhaps you think this is you. It may be. But ask yourself, are you rebuking someone because they violated your beliefs? Are you rebuking someone because uh, they disagreed with you? They dared to disagree with you? Or are you rebuking them because of some grave danger? James chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Do you have evidence in the word of God? Is that your standard for right and wrong? Are you upset because your friend or your brother or your sister did contrary to what you wanted, or are they doing what is contrary to what God desires? We have the alternative. The alternative to receiving the rebuke of the wise. And that is the song of fools and the laughter of fools. The world tells you, it's all about you. It's all about you and your feelings. You realize that your self-esteem and everyone's self-esteem, that is what appears to be the most acceptable idol in this world. No, 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 no. We, can't, we can't give him a bad performance review because that'll, that'll harm his self-esteem. We're thinking more about their self-esteem than about their holiness, about their sanctification. The songs 
and laughter and talk of fools are fillers. They're uh, background noise. Think about the, the top 40 songs, <clears throat> the latest sitcom, suspense, thriller, what everyone's talking about and the world's values. The thoughts of fools, their ridicule, their reviling will never be remembered in heaven. All the insults, all the mockery, all the cursing that the fools have made for you, for being a Christian, none of those thoughts will ever be remembered. At the end of the day, all that matters is that Jesus Christ makes that declaration. This is my beloved. My blood has covered him. My righteous cloak is upon him. And that's all that matters. Because judgment day, Jesus' opinion, God's judgment, doesn't matter what the world says. Common usage in our language for foolishness is that foolishness is equivalent to silliness. Hey, don't be silly. But in the biblical usage, foolishness was not silliness. It was immorality. It was perversion. It was wickedness. It was ungodliness. And so here, when it says, it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools, it's saying to us, any moment of the day, don't be a fool. Be willing to accept a rebuke. Be humble before the word of God and before others. When God says, when his testimony is, all have sinned and fallen short of my glory. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You and I should not be fools. We should believe that word of Jesus. We should repent. We should forsake our sins and turn from them. And we should believe in the good news of the gospel. So humility better than imbecility. Prudence is better than vehemence in verses 7 through 10. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Here, mention first this matter of oppression and bribery. So, he says, surely oppression drives the wise into madness. Oppression is cruel usage of power to inflict suffering on others. And it often or usually drives people mad. It makes them angry. It leads them to despair. But you, you really have to realize here that oppression doesn't cause madness. You understand that? Oppression doesn't cause madness. Just as bribery doesn't cause corruption. Meaning that how you respond to oppression determines the effect in your life. You see, with Jesus, he was oppressed, definitely. He was oppressed by men. But was he mad as the result? Was he crazy? Was he anger? Was he hopeless? None of those things. Oppression doesn't cause madness. 
It's how you respond to oppression. And it's very interesting how when you look at God's people, see, we have to start asking the question, for whom does God allow oppression to exist? And the world's perspective is only for God's worst enemies. But according to God's word, it's the exact opposite. If Jesus is God's son, whom he is, why did he face oppression? Was it because God hated him? Or was it because God loved him? And why is it that as a Christian, that you and I are warned, don't be surprised, don't, don't marvel that uh, in your life you face oppression because of the name of Christ. So obviously here, oppression doesn't cause madness. In fact, in the lives of God's people, Christians who face time in prison falsely, who, who were falsely accused and were tortured, how is it that they say, I come to learn of no greater joy than following and serving my Lord Jesus Christ. Oppression didn't lead to man's oppression actually led to greater godliness and joy. And then you have bribery. You have bribery. Bribery consists of wealth or favors given ex in exchange for a perversion of justice or truth or turning a blind eye to it. Meaning that someone gives you an expensive gift and you're in a position of authority, perhaps you might ask, what is this for? And I think it's safe to say, if no conditions are laid down when you receive it, they can't come to you afterwards and say, oh, I need this favor. Hey, hey no. You have a condition? You, you stated up front. You gave this. This is a gift. I, hey, there's, there's no promises made. There's, there's, there's no if this, then that, tit, tit for tat. No, there's no exchange. The difference between a gift and a bribe is that a bribe is someone trying to turn you from righteousness, turn you from truth, turn you from justice. And here also, a bribe doesn't cause someone to become corrupt. There's usually, in receiving a bribe, there's already the root of greed. There's already the root of covetousness. And other vices where someone who sees that bribe and is willing to take it, it's already that root that allows the bribe to take, uh, to take effect. And here, we think about oppression and we think about bribery. And perhaps it never happens so simply as, hey, I'll, I'll give you this if you do this. Perhaps it's thought of more simply of, <clears throat> well, you could speak up about the truth, or you could keep your job. You could speak up about the truth, or, you know what, you could be hated by everyone. Either one of those. How simple to think about bribery is, if I stand for the truth, if I stand for justice, I lose all the benefits in this world. Or, if I stand for justice and truth, then the world's hatred will come my way. Then if that's the case, all of us are really not that far from either oppression, or fear of oppression, or a love of bribery. Verse 8, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. 
thought of in many ways. All kinds of people. You think about January 1st. If you worked in a gym, maybe, maybe not in a gym during the time of COVID, maybe it's not such a busy place, but beginning of the year, all kinds of people start showing up, doing a workout, but uh, by what? Two weeks, four weeks, you know, how, how busy is that gym? Huh? You're going to start to hear crickets. Birds are going to start gathering there. And, and you see here the beginning of a thing versus the end. People have all kinds of grand plans at the beginning. The building of, of, of a house or a palace. and ha- We're told someone who builds a tower, he doesn't stop and think about what investment goes into it and the tower is half built. So also, when you look at the beginning and the end, you had the fall, the garden, that God provided animal skins to Adam and Eve. They tried to sew fig leaves together. If you ever tried that, it doesn't work too well. It always seems to tear. It doesn't seem to fill all the gaps. But God provided animal skins to cover their nakedness and shame. This is, this is foreshadowing that there would be Christ and his righteousness who covers our shame and our sin. And we read earlier about the gospel from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Before it was types and shadows. And now we have Christ who has come in the fullness, having died on the cross. The perfect priest, the great high priest, who takes away our sin. And after he did his work, he sits down at the right hand of God. He sat down because his work, his work is done. The end from the beginning, understanding how good it is at the end. All the truth that God was telling us in his word. A a door that was just slowly cracking open, more and more open, until you see all that is in the room. And then comparing that to what you and I will see and understand in heaven. When we will understand more fully about the difficulties and God's faithfulness that we have in our lives today. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. There at the end of verse 8. Notice the link, the connection with faith, humility, patience, gentleness, kindness. You see, they all, they all kind of go together. They're all, they're all pearls in a necklace. And then you have the other, the opposite side. Unbelief, pride. Impatience, harshness, rudeness. And then you have the examples. Faith, humility, patience, gentleness, kindness. There's no better example than Jesus Christ, the man who is God. No better example could there ever be. And then for unbelief, pride, impatience, harshness, rudeness, you have no better example than Satan himself. He fell because he desired God's place. When Adam fell, it's because he desired God's place. And you think about the patience of God and his forbearance. Romans 2, 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Part of patience is realizing that things don't happen on our command. 
Things don't happen on our timeline. They happen on God's timeline. And that is the connection of patience with faith. And normally, when an angry man, when a proud man, things don't go his way, his, his voice gets louder, and his hand starts to, starts to swing. A brawler. An angry man. He starts to yell at people. But, as you and I grow in the Christian life, what you'll see is that people don't change because we get meaner and we intimidate people and we, we, we cause them to cower. No, they don't. It should drive us to prayer because we realize we can't change people. We can't change ourselves. And so we go to prayer. And that's why there's patience because God's timeline is not in days and weeks. It's often in years and decades. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Anger is the preferred trait of fools. Especially in response to wisdom. If you speak wisdom before a fool, uh, he either rages or he laughs. According to Proverbs. Anger does not bring righteous outcomes. In James 1, 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the, man, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Anger doesn't result in anything good. At least human anger. Then you think about how the world works. News, social media. You realize that they actually feed on your anger. They feed on your anger. They want to get under your skin. They want to get under your skin and get you angry. And when, when you, you read the next article, and then you start to think, well, that person, those people are different than me, and I despise them. And I tell you, you know what? They did exactly what they wanted to do. They wanted you to be separated from other people. They wanted to divide people, not to unify them. They wanted to draw out your anger because then you forwarded that on to your friends. Hey, this angered me. I got to forward this on. And then you think about this one question. Aren't you glad that God has provided us an unbiased source of truth in our media? Did you catch that? Aren't you glad that God has provided us an unbiased, uh, a completely upright and well-meaning source of truth in our media. I hope you understood my sarcasm. The unbiased source of truth that he has given us is the word of God. As far as others, as far as the people who are making hundreds of billions of dollars, I don't see that as an unbiased source of truth. And ask yourself, your news sources, your social media, if they're driving you to anger and outrage, ask yourself, is this the best source for you? Ultimately, those things can drive you to fear. God's word gives you hope. And it comes by faith. Believing his promises, trusting his word. Don't let the present time cause you to fear about all the things that God has promised you that are good. 
In other words, don't let the fears of the world rob you of joy in Jesus Christ. And then there's the matter. The former days better, better being better than these. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. This is the response of nostalgia. Idealizing the past, but blindness to the present work and blessing of God. Anyone who has a nostalgia of, we need to go back to some other age. Whatever age that might be. We, go, we should go back to the Stone Age. Right, so you have the Ted Kaczynski's. We should go back to the Stone Age where there wasn't technology. Oh, let's go back to the first century church. Let's go back to the time of the Reformation. Let's go back to the uh, pilgrim days in the United States. The bottom line is we should not have any nostalgia of the past. Because when we do, invariably, it robs us of what we see today regarding God's blessing and his work. There was no golden age of the church. You may deem me a heretic. I'm telling you that now. There's no golden age of the church. If there was, it's right now. It is the lives that we're living right now, today. That's the golden age of your church. And tomorrow, it'll be tomorrow. We can't go back to the past. There's no time machine to go back. God never says, hey, let's go, let's go back. Except we're talking about the garden, but really we're going forward. We're looking forward to Christ's return. We're not looking back to the work of Adam. We're looking forward to the work of Christ. Matthew Henry says, It is folly to complain of the badness of our own times when we have more reason to complain of the badness of our own hearts. Wow, how about that for a rebuke from a wise man? huh? Our hearts don't have faith to believe that God is working here and now. He continues, it is folly to cry up the goodness of former times so as to detract from the mercy of God to us in our own times. You and I need to be prayerful for his mercy and his work today. And that by faith, we should cry out to him and trust that he is hearing and that he is answering today. We shouldn't be looking back to any previous period. Lamentations 3, 22 to 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This is the prayer of someone who believes that Today is God's day. That his mercies are new every morning. Not, God, could you do what you once did? No, God is doing a great work every day. And that you and I are called to believe that. We're called to pray for it. We're called to trust in it. We're called to believe that Jesus is still calling sinners to faith and repentance, to salvation. So that's... The fourth point, prudence is better than vehemence. We have the fifth point, wisdom better than wealth, in verses 11 and 12. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. It seems like oftentimes the author of Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, 
He talks about wisdom as human wisdom. And it's no advantage to the fool because they all die. And other times it seems like he's talking about wisdom as in wisdom from above. Well, this is not just true. Money is no protection for eternal life. No, no protection for your soul. <clears throat> that the Psalms talk about how no ransom paid is ever enough. God is not interested in money. He owns all the money. He owns all the wealth in this world. But wisdom, we're told. Wisdom is important. Colossians 2, 3. That in Jesus Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And in God's wisdom, he has given us the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you who are sinners can be made new. That we can find true righteousness in Jesus Christ. And it comes to us by faith apart from works. That wisdom indeed is better than wealth. Because the wisdom of God is that which preserves us for an eternity. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ and Him alone? Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in the church. Don't trust in holy men. Understand that Jesus Christ is the only one who saves. He wasn't a wealthy man by the world's standards. He was a pauper. But he was exactly what he needed to be to be the perfect savior. He is righteous. He is holy. He is without sin. And for that reason, he is God. And he is a sufficient savior for sinners. May we go to our God together.